This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. My name is Rich Bradbury. Welcome to Matt Splained. Um, more weird science today, which either means Matt's out of ideas or he's found a bunch of stories that he's so excited about, he needs to tell us all about them quickly and in a flurry. Hey, Richard. Well, obviously, it's the uh, the latter, uh, as uh, this first story is going to uh, aptly illustrate. Uh, we're going to start today with one of the biggest breakthroughs, I think, in science of the year. None of this Twitter or X nonsense, none of this stuff about crypto kings going on trial. This is a genuine scientific breakthrough. Was my dramatic pause long enough? Um, Well, you could have had longer if you wanted. No, no, I I don't want to risk it. That's right. Well, um, thanks to the tireless work of practically the entire scientific community of the world, we now know why cats purr. Yep. I can I can hear the collective gasps from the smart speakers that send me all your deepest and darkest thoughts. Uh, you see, while we, we sort of knew how and why cats purr, there was always the mystery of why those purrs should be so low-pitched in such a small animal. Mm. Because, you know, it's, it's long been accepted that uh, uh, larger animals, animals that have uh, longer vocal folds, will produce lower frequency sounds. So consequently, you might expect cats because, you know, they're smaller, so they have uh, smaller vocal folds. Mm. You would expect their purrs to resonate at a higher pitch, but for some reason they don't. But, you know, isn't that kind of what cats do, the opposite of what you expect them to do? That's kind of what it means to be a cat, right? Well, that is a a valid point, Um, and it's not just love of cats that has had scientists researching this. You know, given their size and, uh, as we said, the length of their vocal folds, they should be incapable of producing such low-pitched purrs. So this incongruity is what's led a team from the University of Vienna to go down this rabbit hole. I, I thought there'd be a joke about cats and rabbit holes here somewhere. No, when you've cleaned up as many severed rabbit heads as I have, there's really nothing to, oh, to joke about. Uh, although scientists should be researching how cats get enormous wild rabbits through cat flaps and into your kitchen and living room. Uh, yeah. um, although I think that's more of a task for uh, mathematics and physics rather than biology. Uh, my theory is that they just transport from one side of the door to the other when no one's looking, which of course <laughs> supports my cats are aliens hypothesis. Okay, I, I, back to the purring, please. Okay, uh, I never thought I'd uh, hear you say that to me. I'm touched. Uh, the uh, Austrian team has uh, proposed a, a hypothesis centered around muscle contractions in the larynx, believing that this might be the secret ingredient enabling cats to produce that signature purr. So this story uh, comes via the new scientist, by the way. To validate this, they conducted an experiment involving the larynxes of eight domestic cats. And in case anyone is wondering whether there was any cruelty involved, uh, they were taken from cats who had to be put down because of illness. 
So the team discovered that even without muscle contractions, the larynxes could produce a purring sound when air was passed through them. Now, the reason why, yeah, turned out to be a special connective tissue embedded within the vocal folds, which effectively lowers the frequency of the sounds they produce, enabling the creation of, you know, the wonderfully cute purring that all right-minded people love. (laughs) While uh, this connective tissue has been identified in cats before, it hadn't been thought to be linked to the actual frequency of the purring. Okay, um, but has there been any advance in knowing the reason for the purring? Well, as you know, very few animals purr. Um, Cheetahs and lynx are are two animals who are known to purr. But again, science doesn't really know why. A lot of theories have been put forward. One of the the most popular is that purring is a display of contentment and can be interpreted as an invitation for continued interaction. So, Mm. you know, that's why uh, cats purr when they're around people. But cats also purr in other contexts, the uh, moments of pain, moments of distress, suggesting that it is actually a more complex reflex mechanism. There are theories that the purring could serve as a way to soothe the animal, uh, potentially even promoting healing after an injury due to the the vibrations it produces. So the frequency of the vibrations might actually uh, help healing. And another I've heard is that the low purrs of domestic cats might be an adaptation to sounds that humans prefer because the low rumble is more soothing than an animal that sounds like a bandsaw every time <laughs> you, you stroke it. So um, as I said before, I'm hoping that uh, the whole of the world's scientific community is going to develop itself to uh, answering these feline questions very soon. All right. Um, I guess before we move on then, do we have any more uh, pet-related news? Yeah, this is the latest report from uh, Culture Pop's own newly launched research centre. Now, this is known as Knife, which was uh, set up to cut through the massive disinformation that uh, is out there. Uh, All right. Before we get too excited, what exactly does Knife stand for? Uh, the Know Nothing Institute of Factual Examination. <laughs> <laughs> right. Business as usual then. <laughs> well, yes. Um, we just released a, a survey that has conclusively found that dog owners are controlling psychopaths. Now, this is <laughs> this is proper research. We follow rigid test criteria. In fact, we're remaking industry best practices. And we even have a comprehensive peer reviewing system. So... Uh- in other words, you just make it up, you review it, and then you publish it. Just because the survey sample is limited to me, that doesn't make it any less valid. Uh, and there's going to be more data from Knife coming in future episodes, so watch this space. Now, seeing how much cats and dogs like to lick their owners, I thought this next story would be quite appropriate. This is a robot tongue, because... Who wouldn't want a disembodied machine tongue hanging around in their kitchen? It would be like having a a, a Rolling Stones poster that actually does stuff. Uh, In fact, I'm actually hoping that the Rolling Stones lips and tongue logo is the model that scientists have used for that because, you know, that would be cool. My word. Uh, Okay, before we disappear down another storm drain in Matt's psyche, why is someone making a robot tongue? 
Well, researchers at Penn State are engineering the electric tongue uh, that can detect gas and chemical molecules uh, with components that are just a few atoms thick. Now, obviously, this is for industrial rather than domestic use, and its purpose is to provide precise taste analysis without, you know, that that element of human subjectivity. So if you think about the food industry, for example, tasters are required to test Mm. every stage or every minute change in the recipe of the foods we buy in supermarkets. Now, while I can't imagine these machines replacing them completely, they could, of course, easily weed out the obviously unpleasant ones, you know, the ones that might be too salty or too bitter or, you know, the kind of thing. I'm just thinking about, you know, tasting crisps as a a new career move. Um, Anyway, but... I guess technology like this then could be used to influence our diets or even curate restaurant menus, stuff like that. That kind of thing, or to, as you said, uh, uh, taste crisps. Um, (laughs) Up until now, you know, trying to replicate how we respond to taste has been beyond the capacity of machines. They can Mm. measure the amount of salt or other elements that are in something, but not really, you know, not really pass or understand what those results mean. Because, you know, human eating habits and taste preferences are very complex. They're influenced Mm. not just by those nutritional needs, but also by psychological and emotional factors. So as the Penn team notes, uh, that human behavior, while it's observable, is actually challenging to measure and replicate in robots because it requires some amount of emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. This new tool is designed to to be uh, adaptable enough to, if not provide that emotional intelligence, then at least cater to all the five major taste profiles, you know, salty, sour, bittersweet, and of course, umami. I'm always just a little bit reticent to ask how these things work, in case you say something um, horrific. Well, Okay, I know I've kind of muddied the waters a bit by talking about a disembodied tongue. So it's really just a sensor or an array of sensors. So There you uh, go. Yes, exactly. So I know that's what the tongue is too, but the tongue is a lot more than that. You know, it's a, a major organ. It you know, helps us talk, blah, blah, blah. So the robotongue is described as a flat, square, electronic gustatory complex. Didn't Wait, think I'd be... Is that what they call it, the robotongue? Well, they're, they're calling it the, the robotongue, yes, but it is an electronic gustatory complex. Or uh, is this it, something that knife research has come up with? No, no, no. This is genuine from the uh, okay. from the actual story. Uh, uh, you it, said genuine, which means that knife research is in... No, never mind, we'll get to that later. Knife research is genuine, uh, but it comes with a disclaimer, like uh, some billionaire's uh, statements of uh, value. Anyway, okay. back to um, the robotong. Yeah, it combines graphene-based uh, chemitransistors, sensors that detect gas and chemical molecules, uh, with now, I can't even say this, let alone understand what it means. Uh, <laughs> molybdenum disulfide uh, mem transistors uh, which apparently are possible of simulating neurons so Mm -hmm. like i said i don't pretend to understand the science but these components work together to simulate the human ability to taste molecular inputs so the hope is that in the future we can train ai systems to 
provide that kind of consistency in in tasting. I already mentioned quality control in food development. You know, a machine that provides consistent, unbiased feedback. You know, there's potential for that. I think in in so many industries, not just the the food industries. But anyway, another story. Can I I give you a hand going into the break? Um. I'm I'm not entirely sure how to 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 take that. It's a kind of a sentence design that might strike fear into any seasoned presenter's heart. I, I mean, don't be dramatic. I mean, a, a literal hand. You know, in in the past, <laughs> we've talked about uh, the progress in robotic hands and and grip, usually in industrial robots and prosthetics. Mm. We've talked about improving the sensors and cameras surrounding the machines so that they have uh, more awareness of where they exist relative to the subject or the object that they're, they're trying to manipulate. Uh, we've talked about uh, developments in pressure sensors that enable them to grip small or fragile objects without crushing them. But mm. I don't think we've ever had an assistive hand on the show before. But mm. Yeah, that seems to be what researchers at the University of California, Berkeley, are in the process of developing. Uh, a robotic hand that can manipulate complex objects, things like toy planes, even Rubik's Cubes, without dropping them. And there's a really cool video of the hand in operation on New Scientist's uh, YouTube channel, if you want to take a look. I do now. Uh, what enables it to be so uh, dexterous then? Well, unlike a lot of previous systems, this hand has the ability to rotate objects along three axes. So it's right. moving in more directions. Traditional robotic grasping calculates the center of mass and it has a general idea about how an object should be placed. The University of California team has given it more information about where it is and how it should behave. So to get the hand to work, the team had to develop a, a sophisticated computer algorithm known as uh, Rototelt. And again, genuine, not something I've made up. Uh, they trained a, a learning model in a simulation. They provided it with details about you know object shapes and sizes. And they taught it to rotate the object in the simulation as extensively as possible. So they know they have as much information mm. uh, as they possibly can about the shape and about the landscape that surrounds it. For the real world tests, the system was fed visual and touch inputs, enabling the robotic hand to uh, manipulate objects with enhanced precision. Mm. And the result is a machine that can not only handle, you know, unusually shaped objects or objects that need to be manipulated in, in strange ways. It can actually change its grasp on an object once it's been picked up, which is, again, something that humans do, you know, as second nature, but yeah, something yeah. That, that machines find very, very difficult. I'm thinking of a whole bunch of industries that this can go into, but let's keep it clean. Um, it's obviously something that can be very useful for stuff like automated uh, manufacturing lines and processes. Yeah, smart factories, RPA, that, that kind yeah. of thing. So um, it means that the, the components don't have to be placed in an ordered manner because the system is adaptable. So it's yeah. much more like a human worker. So there is potentially to increase efficiency in things like smart factories. Hmm. Now, 
the team acknowledges it's still quite limited. Uh, it currently struggles with slender objects like pencils and screwdrivers because that requires a different kind or different set of dexterity skills. Uh, and if you're still a little bit confused about what the idea of a, a, a home hand might be useful for, other than <laughs> creepy Adams family references and uh, and jokes, uh, although I mean that's a pretty good good reason yeah, to yeah. have you know a hand under your pillow when you wake up in the morning uh but imagine all those things that you've always wished you had an extra hand or arm to help with you know things like doing plumbing or other diy work where you need an extra hand to hold the screwdriver or the, yes. the wrench or the nut uh the same with car maintenance work uh anything where you need you know extra fingers to get into hard to reach places i mean gardening imagine a hand on a pole to help cut hard to reach branches or, or plants the same with painting doing fine painting work up on a ceiling or around light fittings where mm. you know you need very high ladders and mm -hmm. it's very difficult to to reach i mean i tell you elon musk should buy this patent and get his robotics division to churn this out because this i think has the potential to be massive wow well there you have it folks the first time a segment on matt's plane has ended with a huge hand for elon musk um it's not even worth speculating on what's coming after the break though of course you tune into matt's plane here on bfm 89.9 the business station Bulldozing fine measures. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome back to Matt's Splained. We've had purring, uh, hands and tongs which is already to start uh, starting to sound a little bit disturbing in the same sentence. I'm not entirely sure where we're going to go now, though. Well, I think with an intro like that, I've got to take you inside the Pleasure Dome. Oh, my word. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, the sphere, to, to be more exact, a kind of Pleasure Dome. So a lot of people, I think, will have... Read or seen clips of uh, last week's, uh, last weekend's rather, U2 concert in Las Vegas at a venue called The Sphere. Now, that was the first event in the space, and it marks a 25 date residency by the band to launch the venue. Uh, so, a lot of these stats will probably be well known to you if you have, you know, heard this story already. Uh, like it cost $2.3 billion to build. It can seat sort of 18 to 20,000 people. It can be seen from space. Personally, I don't think that's such a big deal because satellites mm. have been watching me from space for years. Mm -hmm. um, its its dome is over 100 meters tall and uh, you could fit the Statue of Liberty inside it. Uh, it contains over a million hockey puck-sized LEDs and these create a, a kind of wraparound immersive video screen at 16K resolution. I, uh, I know more than 160,000 speakers deliver the same sound quality 
to every single seat in the venue. And there are 10,000 haptic seats delivering the kind of motion and sensory experience, a bit like the ones, you know, you you see in the, the 4D movie theaters, mm. you know, literally letting you feel the sound of the music. It's not like you to be excited about stadium scale events, particularly when it comes to U2. Well, I don't mind you too. You know, that that's partly because the, the stadium experience to me is generally a pretty poor one. You know, you pay yeah. loads of money to sit or stand in a shed and you watch <laughs> stick insects on a stage that's a mile away while a tinny old radio delivers the sound to you about half a second after the figures on the stage. You know, basically going to see a stadium concert is like watching TV at home in the 1970s. It's no wonder that, you know, these kind of streaming live events into cinema theatres have become so big because Mm. it's cheaper, it's more comfortable, and really it's no less real than the so-called stadium experience. Mm, mm. So for me, I think the Sphere is probably the first example of a stadium event that actually delivers the experience that your ticket promises you. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's not the only reason I'm highlighting it uh, because this isn't just a feat of technology. It relies on some really clever architectural science and mathematical principles to, to make everything work. Yeah. See, this is your way of making an exciting experience less fun. Well, I mean, we can say there's no tech and it all happens by the magic of fairies. I mean, does that make it more fun? <laughs> well, maybe um, a little bit. <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, I got this information from the, the, the Slash Gear website. So apparently parts of the space were modeled on centuries-old mathematical equations. So everything you see and experience in there is because of hundreds of years of knowledge and technology and progress. You mm. know, even if you are just using all of that history and information to to watch you too no i i do like you too but i'm sure there'll be shows for bands in the place that i hate pretty soon um the architects then generated a, a model of the structure using virtual reality um they did that before the construction process mm. and the dome itself consists of hundreds of interlocking triangles which create that 360 degree shape now obviously replicating this the cost is going to be uh, an impediment 2.3 billion dollars but it's the kind of investment that i can imagine something like the singapore government is looking at very closely because honestly i think they'd be willing to spend a few million dollars to get coldplay to do a years-long residency on the island (laughs) um without entering the severed heads of that warren um that's Matt's clumsy callback to the cat story earlier on, by the way. Shall we talk about Mean Girls? And I don't know why you want to talk about Mean Girls, but let's talk about Mean Girls. Well, no, that's just misdirection at its best. It's giving you something ridiculous to say so that you don't notice the next ridiculous thing uh, that I've asked you to say. You know, it's my game. Yeah. All right, Em. Go on then. What? Why? Well, this is a story about uh, Paramount Pictures slicing up the movie Mean Girls, which came out, I think, in 2003, and making it available on TikTok for one day only on October the 3rd, which, as Richard knows only too well, is... Apparently, it's Mean Girls Day. This is humiliating. do you, have you seen the movie? Do you like the movie? Um, because I, talking I, I, about it makes me want to watch it again. Well, I, I, I probably have seen it, but clearly it's not stuck there in my head and it isn't something, yeah, maybe, probably not. 
Right. Well, that's your task for the week to uh, to watch Mean <laughs> Girls. Yeah. I, there will be questions on next week's show. Um, but in a way, this story itself is a bit of a, a, a callback or maybe a generational response to um, the story we had last week about the Run P movie app. Mm-hmm. Now, Run P was about finding breaks in a movie so that you can run to the loo. Movies on TikTok is more about watching movies in chunks that are perfect for quick burst watching. Now, there's a huge trend for uploading movies and TV shows onto TikTok, even though it contravenes uh, the user guidelines for copyright violations. Now, TikTok, of course, says it works with the studios to remove copyright content, but users often find ways to outwit the bots because stupid AI. Mm -hmm. Um, They modify the clips to circumvent restrictions, so they'll crop them, they'll add filters, or even altering the the film speed so that dialogue sounds like, you know, the, the, the chipmunks talking. Now, as mentioned in the New York Times, the hashtag movie clips on TikTok has more than 200 billion views, which wow. sh- yeah, which shows that maybe TikTok's not great at removing copyright content. Um, that is a, a staggering number. So yeah. Paramount's decision to upload Mean Girls seems to be an indication of Hollywood's growing willingness to engage with you know, this new media consumption landscape. So it does put the studios in the crosshairs. You either respond to the trend or you risk alienating your audience by closing them down. Yeah, so we've seen the big studios trying to monetize short-form content before. Uh, Notably, I think we had that very short-lived platform, um, Quibi, was that? How you say yeah, it? Yeah. yeah. Um, it launched, I think, in 2018 with major studios behind it, big directors on board, and it crashed within a year. Uh, yeah. Because, you know, content really is about the, the gatekeepers. Short form content has evolved quite organically. It moves really fast and it co opts, creates, and abandons trends, you know, really, really quickly, which mm. is the hard opposite of the way the TV and movie industries operate with their, you know, glacial development processes and, you know, unresponsive mm. lead times. Mm-mm. Do you think this is the uh, the studios giving in then and going for a new audience for older content? It could be. So the, again, New York Times notes that a few companies seem to be experimenting with this. Uh, there was a production company that put uh, a sliced up episode of uh, Love Island on the platform, I think, last year. Uh, the pilot for the sitcom Killing It uh, was also put up officially. So it was put up in five parts. Paramount trying the same with Mean Girls could mean that studio is looking at this as a model to promote and extend the lifespan of older content. Uh, After all, you know, that's exactly what uh, TikTok has done with music, reviving Mm. back catalogue music and artists. You know, Mm -hmm. you can't force people to adopt the songs, but you make them available and people find them themselves. So Paramount released the movie in uh, 23 snippets, ranging from 60 seconds to nearly 10 minutes long. And viewers get to relive Lindsay Lohan navigating the treacherous waters of high school cliques. And of course, like me, wearing pink on Wednesdays. (laughs) Okay. okay. Um, So why do you think they took it down just after one day then? 
Well, I think there could be a lot of reasons. So posting and then deleting it makes sense from a publicity point of view because it makes it appear exclusive. You know, Mm -hmm. even if you can easily watch the movie on a variety of other accounts on the platforms, uh, there could also be contractual reasons. So TikTok has blanket agreements with uh, music companies and publishers. So, you know, when music is used on the platform, everyone involved in that process in theory is compensated. So there may not be the same mechanisms in place to reward all the parties that have rights to residual income streams Mm -hmm. from TVs and movies, you know, Mm -hmm. the the writers, the actors, production staff. Uh, And, you know, given that the writer's strike has only just been resolved, that might not be an area that, uh, you know, Paramount wants to mess around with too deeply at this point. It's interesting, though. I mean, do you think at some point we might see film and TV studios kind of embracing this uh, the, the, the remix philosophy of uh, TikTok? Well, I'm not sure how committed they are to that kind of shift, you know, allowing people to alter their content. But it is an interesting debate. Mm. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, the users who post this content remove the supposed boring bits uh, and of course those <laughs> are the bits that writers and directors tend to to love mm. uh, not so much you know a run pee as a no need to pee edition of uh, most sort of films and shows and again the new york times quotes a, a tiktok user called elizabeth kidd who says she became hooked on a uk drama called uh, called the midwife via these TikTok slices. But she says that when she downloaded a full episode, it was one of the most boring things that she'd ever seen. Um, So, you know, especially now that, that everything can be stored digitally, film and TV production houses, they've got millions of hours of library content that's looking for relevance, it's looking for an audience. Mm-hmm. If slicing and remixing is the key to monetizing that asset, I really don't see the the studios resisting for, for too long. All right, then. Um, I think we've got time for a, a quick one to go out with. Okay, well, I don't think we've mentioned uh, this for a couple of years, but it's Fat Bear Week again. <laughs> oh, is it? <laughs> yeah. Um, I've been hugely entertained watching bear videos over the past few months, watching them climb into cars, uh, walking into convenience stores and stealing candy, even high-fiving passing motorists. Now, I know these are all dangerous encounters. I'm more amazed at the adaptability and cleverness of the bears. Um, Plus, the only person I can normally refer to as fat on this show is myself. So, you know, my mum would be proud. So (laughs) thanks to the uh, BBC for this. Um, Fat Bear Week is a competition where the brown bears of Alaska's Katmai National Park are the stars of the show. The bears, you know, they all kind of gather along the Brooks River, River to feast on salmon. And their goal is to get obviously as fat as possible before winter hits so that they've mm. got enough to to take them through the winter. Twelve bears are chosen each year for the uh, Fat Bear Weeks bracket and fans get to vote online to decide which is the chonkiest. Mm. Uh, this year, there's a there's an outsider, uh, a young contender known as B06 Junior, who has increased his body weight by nearly 7,000% since birth. So what? yeah, I, you may want to stay away from that, that job as a crisp taster, Richard. Um, <laughs> anyway, 
7,000% since birth, and he's apparently trying to uh, outchunk some of the veteran winners. Would you say then that he's a, or they are an example of an underbear? Uh, yeah, um, I don't think that term is going to catch on, which is why I got you to say it rather than me. Um, he's still the the underdog, even if he is a bear. Uh, the current heavyweights uh, are 480, also known as Otis, and 747, who has been called Colbert. Uh, Otis is 27 years old. He's a, a four-time champion, and he's a big fan favorite. Uh, Colbert is... Uh, a two-time Fat Bear Week champion, and both of these brown bears weigh roughly half a ton. Oh, or, my word. Exactly, or, or 1,200 pounds in American money. Uh, <laughs> in 2022, around 10 million people tuned in to the Fat Bear Week live streams, uh, and you compare that to uh, the first live streams from 2014, where only a couple of thousand people voted. Now, it's estimated that some bears can eat as much as 250 kilograms of food in the weeks leading up to, to hibernation. You know, I say bring the bears to the sphere in Las Vegas, because that's the kind of competitive eating <laughs> that I can get behind, especially in 16K. I would absolutely tune in to watch that for sure. I, I would go, I would fly directly to Vegas and sit and watch that for sure. Absolutely. Uh, thanks for that, Matt. Really interesting show this week. Thank you. Folks, um, of course, uh, you can head over and follow Matt on all of his socials. Uh, you can find him on at Culture Pop, of course, on, on LinkedIn and Instagram. Uh, you can also uh, subscribe to his Substack, uh, Substack newsletter. That is uh, culturepop.substack.com. For more funny stuff, uh, listen back to the podcast, of course, if you missed it. You can listen back to it on our BFM app. That's available on the Apple App Store or Google Play. This has been Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9 the business station. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.